Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with Ed Walter, the global CEO of Urban Land Institute, or ULI. We discuss how the hotel industry can do a better job of adopting technology the future of cities, and remote workforce predictions. Enjoy the conversation and make sure to listen to the second half of this conversation in the next episode. Well, Ed, thank you so much for joining. Where are you coming in from today? So today I'm in the, in McLean, Virginia, working, working from home again, nice. like, just, like most of the United States, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm, I'm working from a hotel, so I think everyone's kind of navigating different Zoom environments, but you have a beautiful background behind you. Well, I, I can assure you that my old hotel buddies are happy to hear that somebody is actually in a hotel and, and, and enjoying it. <laughs> well, why don't we actually start there? Obviously, you know, our paths have connected um, now at multiple organizations, but you went from host to ULI. Can you just walk people through maybe your career and, and, and its trajectory? Sure. Well, you know, I started, I started in the real estate business fresh out of law school and was in the apartment business for the first 13 years doing a little bit of everything and probably mastering almost none of it. But it was a, as I would tell students a lot of the times, it was a great foundation because I got exposure to all the different aspects of the real estate business. And I had come back to D.C. in the early 90s to work with my two predecessors as uh, CEO at Host in the early 90s and then followed them over to Host in 96. I was at Host for 20 years with the last nine as CEO. So it uh, was certainly, you know, the hotel industry from 96 to 2016 was certainly an interesting time given that you had 9-11 as well as the great financial recession all happening during that time frame. And technologically, right, you had, you know, just a complete transformation of the business, obviously, with the arrival of the OTAs and obviously Airbnb. And I'm, I'm curious, and I know Fifth Wall was probably a small part of it, but how did you look just holistically as a hotel company at how to embrace technology and innovation? How did you approach that? It's, you know, it's... Technology in the hotel space has been really challenging, especially for the hotel owner. And I think sometimes if you look at how the different segments of the business perform, you can really see how much technology negatively impacted the owner. Because as you were pointing out, as you had the rise of sort of the the Expedia's and the Hotels.com, and you had the greater sophistication of pricing models in general in the industry. You have Airbnb coming out. You had a lot more transparency around price. You started to not have the ability to drive rate as effectively as you could in the past. And so the net effect is if you really, if I look at what technology did for the business, at least on the revenue side, I'm not sure that it necessarily helped the hotel owner that much. Now, there are a lot of other advances that happened on the technology side that made a difference in terms of costs. But overall, if you look at how the hotel space performed, 
probably at, from the Great Recession and until today. Um, it, technology's been challenging for the business because it, um, it just affo it afforded greater access, but it also afforded greater transparency. And I think right. that was one of the reasons why when I was still at host and we made the investment with you, we recognized that it was important for us to not just sit back and wait for the next wave of whatever it might be to hit us, that we needed to play more of a need to be more in the mix and maybe not playing a leadership role, but at least playing some sort of an advisory role to help figure out what, what were the companies that you guys were investing in that might be helpful to us as we try to offset some of the negative impact that we had had from some of the other advances in technology on our business. Yeah, and what's so interesting, obviously, about the hospitality space is that so much of commercial real estate doesn't necessarily intersect in a meaningful way with consumer technology. But obviously, the hotel industry has, and in some ways, therefore, has been at the cutting edge of how technology has changed the real estate industry. And, and I'm curious how, how that experience, right, of um, your broad view of technology and innovation and how to change a traditional real estate business by exposing, you know, your teams to the innovation economy. As you've moved now to ULI, which is obviously a similar but different mandate, how has that thread continued? Well, some of that, you know, it's, it's a great question. Um, it was one of the things, that when I arrived at ULI, they had just approved a strategic plan. And I think one of the most fundamental elements of the new strategic plan was a recognition that we had a long way to go from a technology perspective as an organization. And so the immediate investments in an enhanced member directory so people could connect with each other, investments in something called Navigator so people could find a way to play a role with ULI. What was probably the most impressive thing that we did that you sort of wonder why we didn't have this before was something we call Knowledge Finder. We're an institution that's about sharing best practices and conveying information to our members and others, but certainly primarily our members. We had no really good way to do it. We had done 700 advisory service panels and most of them were still in paper form. So Knowledge Finder gave us an ability to organize all of the work that we've done, and these days, all of the webinars that we're doing and make that all easily searchable and accessible to our members. So when you, when you think about it, if you're an organization that's predicated on sharing best practices, finally having the ability to disseminate that easily to our members is a huge step forward for us. And so that, you know, that was a very, I would probably describe that in some ways as the most fundamental change that happened as a result of that strategic plan. It's even better from the CEO's perspective is it all got done on time and on budget. And we both know that you can't usually say that about major technology projects. So the other side of it is how do we, how do we kind of grapple with the impact that technology is having on the real estate business? And yeah, I think you're familiar with our product council network, and that's where the most senior industry leaders get together in smaller groups and talk about topics that are of interest. You know, the most popular product councils have been the two that are focused on technology. And you know, I think everybody wants to be on them. The talent that they attract is, is, is sort of accessed by the rest of ULI. And then as you look at the, med the major meetings that we're having, 
I don't think we've had one since I've been here where there hasn't been a major session in some way dedicated to technology. And the attendance at all of that is really strong because again, I think the real estate industry as a whole recognizes that it was behind the curve in tech. Um, I think my old industry, as I was describing before, felt the impact of it early. Uh, but others are, you know, others are, others are certainly feeling it too. And, and I think now the, the leaders of our industry are really cognizant that they need, to, they, need to, they need to be spending more time with people like you to understand what's coming, both from a defensive and an offensive capability. And it's, it's so interesting to, to hear that from you, obviously, in the really unique vantage point that, that you sit in as this massive consortium of, you know, the real estate industry trying to collectively solve problems and share best practices. And the reason I say that is that in, in a different way, we kind of sit, um, or, or fifth wall's growth can somewhat be explained by that growing self-awareness in the real estate industry. That technology is becoming increasingly core, increasingly even existential to the success or failure of real estate strategies. And, you know, I think there's so much also that we can learn from ULI about, you know, we've in a smaller way tried to build a consortium, right, of forward thinking, um, ambitious real estate companies that believe technologies the future, right, is something that is not just a bolt-on, it's actually increasingly core and should inform their strategy. And doing that requires just the best practices around idea sharing and collaboration, because I think what's been almost uh, eliminated from the real estate industry in the last 10 years was this kind of old world corporate venture capital mentality, where it was like, I need to get technology so that no one else can get the same technology and keep my peers from getting it. I feel like that is slowly dying in the real estate industry. Would you agree with that? I, I think so. I would say, probably look at it from two perspectives. Number one, back in my hotel days, we got frustrated a couple of times with some big technology projects that Marriott undertook where there was a viewpoint that it had to be invented there. And the challenge with that is that it tended, uh, apropos my prior comment, it didn't tend to finish on time and it didn't tend to finish on budget. And then the problem you had is that it, it was not, it was complicated to support it because it was such a custom driven application that you know, it, it very quickly became outdated and it was only their internal group that could handle the update. So we had quickly become an advocate whenever they were looking at a, a more significant project is use something that someone else has put together that's being used across the industry. Because if it's widespread, if there's widespread use, there'll probably be widespread maintenance and, it'll, and we won't have to be solely this one's responsible for supporting the upgrades that are we are obviously going to come. I think when you look at the other, if I look at the apartment business, some of the revenue management software there has happened has happened in partnerships. I mean, somebody has to take the lead in the, some of these areas just in order to provide the capital for it to develop. And whoever is doing that should get some initial advantage of it. But at the end of the day, I don't. I guess the question is, is how often is technology going to be the differentiator in the success of a company versus other factors that simply use the technology in a way to make their operations as, as productive as possible? 
Yeah. When, when it should be proprietary and when it shouldn't. And also just getting exposure to it earlier to inform, you know, right. big real estate strategic capital allocation decisions. The way, you know, I always think about it is, is that there's a whole lot of venture capitalists out there, uh, fifth wall included, that are providing free, effectively, R&D to the real estate industry, right? There's a lot of investment that is going into consumer and enterprise technology, all of which is designed very meaningfully to solve the real estate industry's problems. And, you know, if the real estate industry can figure out the right entree to access that, um, and I would think of Fifth Wall as being one of those avenues to access that, um, there's a way to just more cost efficiently get access to the right technology that can improve your business without having to develop it in-house or kind of uh, engage in building your own corporate venture. Exactly. You know? Exactly. I mean, the beauty is, frankly, let us leverage uh, uh, off of your expertise and yours and the other partner's capital so that, not, you know, we obviously not everything that you invest in is necessarily going to ultimately make sense. Uh, but it makes more sense to have a group like you handle that for either whether it's host or Avalon or some of the other groups that I'm involved with. Yeah. And, and switching gears a little bit, uh, because you're in such a unique position, I'm just curious to get your macro views on some of the big questions people are asking about the real estate industry, right? So, so maybe I'll just start and pepper you with a few uh, big topical newsworthy open questions. Um, what happens to cities? I'm in New York right now. I'm maybe getting a bit of a firsthand view of it. It feels eerie. It feels different than it used to. But over a long time horizon, what happens to like the downtown core as we know it? I think when you look longer term, it's, it's ultimately going to look a lot like it did before COVID hit. You know, I, I, I think we're, we're dealing, obviously in the short term, and New York's a great example because it's so dense, it's so big, and there's, and it's so many things were lost because of COVID that it's created an impetus for a lot of folks to, that could move out, to move out. Now, my young daughter, who's just starting her first job, couldn't wait to get there, but I know she can't wait for the city to open up a little bit more. But I think part of what we're running into, COVID has forced has ex the way I see it is COVID has accelerated some trends that were already in place. And this one of the simplest ones is we've all wondered what was going to happen when millennials started to get to the family formation stage. And so some of the data that we've looked at has suggested that the growth in urban areas had actually started to slow at the early part of the, this past decade. Like in the 11 or 12 range, you actually started to see the pace of growth slow. And at Avalon, we had concluded that we were probably going to see more opportunity in the suburbs, not necessarily this year. It was a decision made a few years ago to allocate more investment dollars to the suburbs because we saw the demographics going in that direction as millennials aged, were more likely to have kids and then started to move out to the suburbs to get more space. COVID's accelerated that phenomenon. I think what an interesting question is going to be, how has it... Have, have, has the 30-year-old that thought they weren't going to move till they were 32 moved out now? And then is, the, is this exit exodus going to slow a bit? Because in, a, in effect, they've kind of moved a couple years worth of demand that was going to go to the suburbs. It's just accelerated and moved out of town. But I don't think the fundamental attraction of a city is gone. 
I, I think that the, you know, the major cities of the U.S. are still where people want to live. You're actually seeing a broadening in terms of some of these mid-sized cities that probably would never have been on my, you know, sort of my frame of reference when I was 25 or 30 as a place to live. Now they're, they're, they're becoming more dynamic and they're less expensive than some of the major cities and you know, the different industries are going into those markets. And I actually think you're seeing a broadening of markets that are attractive to companies and to talent. And is that, is that I think, a function of both the kind of immediacy, obviously, of what we're dealing with right now? We are in a pandemic. Various cities are in different states of lockdown. So that there's kind of probably some noise that that's almost right. you know, very short-term local policy-driven. But then more long-term, do you think there's a, almost a demographic reshuffling that is afoot where, you know, cities that have historically been these magnets for knowledge workers, especially young knowledge workers right out of school, it's not that they're losing their grip, but their market share, so to speak, of how much of that, those knowledge workers they capture is going down in these, these smaller cities, as you were describing them, are capturing a lot of that. Is that happening? I think it is to some degree, although I feel like the data I've seen has suggested that it is still very targeted. So yes, the, there's a move maybe out of San Francisco and you're seeing maybe, I'm sure you're seeing some movement out of Seattle, but I don't know that it's going, it's not going everywhere. It's, it's going to Austin. I think we'd like to think it's going to be coming to Washington. Amazon making the decision to move here was at least a statement. Although prior to that, our growth had not, we had a good solid base, but not that many folks here. I think Raleigh-Durham continues to attract. So I think it is moving from some of the traditional tech centers, but it's, it's, still, going, it's still picking markets where there is a there's enough of a technology base that companies are comfortable that they can hire when they move there. You know, I think that was one of the reasons DC or Northern Virginia made sense for Amazon was not only in a good place to live, but a place where they thought there was enough of a base that they could recruit, that they could fill the jobs that they had. And do you think that kind of going forward as, as people have talked about what does the, the future of, office look like? Everyone seems to be, everyone in the real estate industry seems to have a very strong view on what the future of virtualization or remote working uh, will look like. Um, it seems that in the real estate industry, unsurprisingly, there's more of a bias towards people are going to want to return to offices. There are certain things that can only be uh, built and cultivated culturally in, in an office. Um, and on the other side, you, you are hearing some tenants say, look, we are going to allow our employee, employees to work remotely indefinitely, and we're actually working better on Zoom. And the truth is, we probably both know the answer somewhere in the middle. Right. What's the middle for you? What do you think the end state is? I think this is going to be one of the more fascinating questions in the real estate business. I mean, the two areas that I feel are the most, it, it will be interesting to see what happens is office and retail. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, and, but crystal ball in both is complicated, especially in office. You know, you look at office and clearly everybody's gotten comfortable. I think 
guys like me now believe you can actually work effectively at home. In fact, you probably, the reality is, is if you're diligent, you're probably getting more done at home than you would at the office, at least from a standpoint of work. That's ignoring all the benefits of culture and, and interacting with people. You can argue that that notion of the open office with people sitting six feet or five feet across from each other starts to feel a little sketchier, a little scarier right now. So you could envision the office of the future having a little bit more space, which then means that maybe that office of the future needs more space per employee than we have right now. On the other hand, if folks are not coming in as much, then maybe you don't need as much space because there just aren't as many people there. So we just finished last month a survey of over 500 professionals, both in the real estate business and outside, in conjunction with Ernst & Young. And the, one of the stats that came out of that was when you polled that group, they would say that 20% of their workforce work from home 20% of the time. So the way I simplify that is when they looked across the workforce, they basically included one-fifth of their workforce worked one day a week at home. Their estimate of what we would look like in three or four years, so post-pandemic, was that 60% of the workforce would work from home 40% of the time. So again, that's two days a week that everybody's working at home. Right. You know, it, 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 that, that's a pretty big change if that's what it turns into. I suspect that what that means is you really are going to, uh, the companies are going to adopt more of a hoteling approach to office, to their office layouts as opposed to designated desks. Because if, if the average person's only in three days a week, it's going to be harder to just give them a desk and file cabinet and say that's there. You're going to be changing the structure of the office. So, and I'm curious, do you think at the same time that more companies will shift to a almost more multinodal headquarters concept, meaning that the notion of like you have one headquarters office and then a series of satellite offices will morph more into you just have 10 offices across the country and there is no central headquarters. Do you think we'll see a, a, a bleeding into multinodal offices in the future as well? You know, it, I, I could certainly see where that could happen. Um, I think it lot has to do with the different job functions. So, you know, the, the, obviously if you're in sales or in those types of positions or that type of a, if that's a big part of a company, then, then some sort of a regional structure probably makes a lot of sense because while well, we've all gotten comfortable communicating this way, I think we'd all rather when we're trying to make a sale, we'd rather be across the desk or across the table from somebody than just across the computer. But I think for things like strategy, um, maybe even sort of talent development, things like that, there is a benefit to being in a centralized location. And in some ways, if folks are in even less frequently, the notion of at least having a core group in a place where when they're there, they can connect with each other to me could be just as important. So the, the one benefit of the, of the sort of structure that you described is in a world where you might be worried more about disruption from storms and things like that. You know, we're kind of, climate change has taken us in that direction. That becomes a little bit, your more diversified platform becomes a, a safer business in some ways. 
Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.